Thank you, Dan. Following up some Beethoven with Bach. You know what they say, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it. <laughs> and that's as good as it's going to get this morning. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin, Luke chapter 16. And as you turn there, I'll remind you that as we go through our study of Luke's gospel, we are in the section of Luke where Jesus is fixedly, doggedly focused and heading to the cross. And as he goes there, he begins to teach. And this section of Luke contains more parabolic teaching and parables than any other section in the book, not many miracles. And specifically in the section we're in, we see him go back and forth between his disciples and the Pharisees. Jesus is teaching his disciples both positively and, and by the negative example of the Pharisees, what he's looking for in his followers. And Luke, in highlighting that, is also showing us the marks of authentic faith and how did the Pharisees become the Pharisees? How did they miss so badly? And we get to see that as well. Our passage this morning is a very difficult passage. Probably no other passage in Luke's gospel has given me more difficulty in trying to figure out the internal logic of it than this passage. And what I mean is that Luke has told us that he has carefully arranged his material after doing careful research. And so I'm working with the assumption that the content is not ad hoc or haphazard, that there's a reasoned argument. And yet in the five verses we'll look at this morning, at least initially in my beginning study, and I suspect for you as well, the, the flow of Jesus' logic and argument is hard to follow. My ESV Bible even breaks verse 18 off as its own standalone paragraph and topic because the, uh, the translators and the arrangers of the ESV weren't sure how this all fit together. So we're going to read verses 14 to 18, and then I ask you to think about what, what is Jesus saying, and how does he get from one topic to the next? How does he develop what has come before, and how does he set up what is coming thereafter? Luke 16, verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And so here in these five verses, we have a transition from what, if you look at the beginning of chapter 16, was Jesus teaching his disciples, 16.1, he said to his disciples, and he told them the story of the shrewd and dishonest manager who embezzled his master's resources, but demonstrated a shrewdness in being aware of the judgment he was facing, the calamity he was facing, and taking measures to prepare himself to survive that and be well-received on the other side of it. And Jesus tells his disciples, you likewise. Um, take unrighteous mammon and make for yourself friends so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. And he warns them that they can't be serving money and God. In fact, look at the last verses of 16. Verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He's teaching his disciples. 
but he's doing it in the hearing of the Pharisees. Because verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. What things? The things about money. And they scoffed. And so he teaches them. But if you go to chapter 17, where does he pick back up again? He said to his disciples. But 1720, being asked by the Pharisees. 1722, he said to his disciples. You see the back and forth of Jesus' teaching to the disciples, to the Pharisees, to the disciples, to the Pharisees. And so what we're getting, both positively and negatively, are the hallmarks of a true disciple, true faith, as Jesus teaches on the way to Jerusalem and the cross. And this morning, he is going to correct, rebuke, instruct the Pharisees, particularly on three topics. Their misunderstandings of law, gospel, and kingdom. Law, gospel and kingdom. I think I figured out Jesus' logic in this section. In each one of the statements, the statement on the Pharisees and that they love money and that they justify themselves, that makes sense. Jesus' statement about the ministry of John the Baptist and the law, each of them taken individually makes sense. But how they fit together, that's the challenge. But I think, I think I've I figured it out um, by God's grace and we'll work through it and, and you can test my interpretation against the text. So let's dive in Law, gospel, and kingdom with point one. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, verses 14 through 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And here we see the development, again, of the Pharisees' unbelief. If you turn back to chapter 15, in the first two verses, we see the Pharisees' most recent complaint about Jesus. 15, 1 and 2, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So what starts with grumbling in chapter 15 has now escalated to open contempt and scoffing. In fact, the word here for, um, that the ESV has for ridicule is the same word used when Jesus is on the cross in Luke 23, 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, he is the chosen one. So they've, they've escalated their game. What starts as grumbling and discontent has now turned out to open. It literally means to turn up the nose, to be haughty and hold in contempt, to scoff and mock. They're hearing Jesus' teaching, and they, they think it's ridiculous, they think it's ludicrous. They hold Jesus in open contempt. What is it about Jesus' teaching that they find contemptuous? Well, it's teaching here on money. And Luke gives us an insight into how and why that is. He tells us that they are lovers of money. And we know that they, as students of the law, as those who hold themselves up as teachers in Israel, who are um, close compatriots with the, the, the scribes, who are the lawyers, they've probably constructed some sort of Old Testament biblical defense of that. After all, wasn't Abraham rich? And Abraham refused to be enriched by other people. He wanted to make it clear God had made him rich. Solomon was so rich that the queen of Sheba came and marveled. Do not the Proverbs say that the wise men's storehouse was filled with oil and valuable and good things? He gives an inheritance to his children. And so they, they mock Jesus when he says, you cannot serve both, they're at odds with one another, and what you really should do with your wealth and possessions in this life is, is store up, pay it forward for treasure and wealth in the next life. 
They, they mock and laugh at him. They, point one, they heard his teachings on mammon, the things of this world. And Jesus' teaching in 16 is nothing new. He said something very similar in chapter 12, where he told, turn back to chapter 12, he told his disciples, after telling the story of the rich man and his towers with his abundant crop, you don't want to be rich in earth and not in regard to God in Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. For thief, no thief approaches and no moth destroys for your treasure so your heart will be also. See, in Jesus' logic, the advent of the kingdom is what changes things. And Jesus is still telling his disciples, you want treasure. You do. You want treasure. He's saying, you want treasure that doesn't fail. You want treasure that cannot be stolen. You want treasure that endures. And with the advent of his ministry in the kingdom, that is his command to his disciples. And the Pharisees think this is ridiculous. They, they scoff. They mock. But it's because they loved money, point two, therefore they hated him. They loved money, therefore they hated him. No clearer proof of Jesus' proverb can be given than this right here that we see. How did he end his teaching in verse 13? You will either, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one, despise the other. Well, they love money, so whom do they hate? They hate God. Now, they don't think they hate God, but their hatred of God is evidenced in their scoffing and mocking at the Son of God. See, rarely do people rail directly against God, but we can see the way um, people's hearts are towards God by how they are towards His people. Here's God's Son. Here is God incarnate, the giver of all good things, the one who spoke creation into existence, and they scoff and mock at Him because they worship and serve the creation rather than the Creator. Jesus made it clear you can't do both. They aren't doing both. So why is it in part that the Pharisees hated the Son of God? Because they loved money. This isn't about a legitimate, honest misunderstanding of the text. This isn't about um, holy men who sincerely held to a wrong interpretation. No, 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 no. They, they, they loved money, and so they hated Jesus. And so Jesus responds to them. Jesus responds to them. And he, and he just calls them out. Jesus evidences his knowledge of them. He understands them. He gets them. And so we read in verse um, 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men. But God knows your hearts. <clears throat> For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So <laughs> Jesus takes them head on. He does it presumably in front of the disciples. He's just been teaching the disciples and the Pharisees are overhearing, so these two groups are close enough that one can hear what the other is being taught. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what your problem is. Your problem is you justify yourselves before men. They seek to be justified before men. It's another great either-or. We've seen the either-or of either loving and serving money or loving and serving God. Another great either-or the Scriptures lay out is either you will seek God's approval God's praise, God's honor and glory, or the honor and glory of man. If you turn your Bibles back to 1 Samuel 15, 
I think we can see a really clear example of how this works and how a, a, a desire, a valuing, a love of the approval, justification of man is directly at odds with the approval of God. I mean, after all, and as you turn to 1 Samuel 15, what were Jesus' opening beatitudes? Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you when all people speak well of you. You see, if you pursue people speaking well of you, justification, glory and honor in sight of men, it's an either-or proposition. Now, what we're going to look at is how Saul lost the kingdom. Israel's first king, Saul, had two great failings, two great mistakes. First, he lost the dynasty when he offered an unauthorized sacrifice. It was not his to offer. But second, when he was instructed to go and, and war, make war on the Amalekites, and he was to commit total war, leaving no survivors, no prisoners, no spoils of war, everything destroyed, he did not obey. But he spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and he spared the best of the animals. And so pick it up in verse 14. Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen that I hear? And notice how Saul responds. Eventually he'll get to the truth of the matter. But what I want you to see is how people that fear man and, and seek the praise of man can still dress it up in religious guise. Saul said, They've brought them from the Amalekites. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now, that sounds really good. Just not what God said to do. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go to vote to destruction. The sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? You'll notice also that Saul, um, Samuel is indicating, is combining the fear of man and their praise with the love of money. These things work together at times. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission for which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king, I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and ox, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Still got the same defense. This, we did it for good reason. We're going we're to give this to God. And Samuel said, As the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices is in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen, the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now there is where Saul loses the throne. Now he will reign, in fact, for years longer, but here is the moment where God says, you're not king. He's going to send Samuel to go find a king, a man after his own heart. And Saul said to Samuel, upon this judgment, I have sinned. Now he's going to change his tune. He recognizes his fault. Look at his explanation. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So you can fear man or you can fear God, but you can't fear both. Just like you can serve 
money, or you can serve God, but you can't serve both. And this looks good. This looks hopeful. Saul confesses his sin. I, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 25. Now therefore, please pardon my sin. That looks good. And return with me, then I may be out bow before the Lord. Hmm. Why does Saul want Samuel to return with him? Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of the people and before Israel, and return with me, and I may bow before the Lord your God. Why does Saul want Samuel to return with him? So that he can be seen publicly, to be in lockstep with God's prophets, so that he can be publicly honored as he goes to worship the Lord with Samuel. His repentance is crocodile tears because he still values what people think. He still is seeking the glory and honor of man, not the glory and honor of God. It's an either-or proposition, and the Pharisees are doing the same thing. If they have to choose between God's praise and man's praise, they choose man's praise. And so their religion is built and structured to maximize the exposure they get before people. And we'll see they have cleverly found ways to round sharp corners when it comes to God. Their religion is designed to justify them in the sight of men. That men would think well of them. That men would think they are righteous. And consequently, God is not on their radar. They seek to be justified before men. In fact, in another chapter back in Luke, Jesus will directly take this on in chapter 18, the parable of the tax collector and the publican, I mean the Pharisee and the publican who go to pray for God. Verse 9, some who trust, he told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So if you're wondering, okay, how, how did the Pharisees miss the mark? How did these people who knew their Bibles inside and out, how did they go so wildly off the mark? Well, we've got two insights here. One, they loved money. Two, they care about the praise of man and man's verdict on them and their lives, not God's. That's, that's how they got to where they are. They love stuff, and they love what people think of them. This is the ultimate dichotomy, Romans 1. You either serve the creator or the creation, and they're serving the creation, the mammon, the possessions, and they're serving what people think of them. The fear of man, not the fear of God. They seek to be justified before men, and Jesus counters, but God knows your hearts. Now, this is the same line of argumentation he gave back in chapter 11 when he called them um, whitewashed tombs who clean the outside of the cup but not the inside. So you care what people think Jesus is saying, but God sees what's on the inside. God sees what's on the inside. And then he brings in this judgment. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, one of the reasons why you can't serve the fear of man and the fear of God is because man's values and God's values are at odds. And that's, that's Jesus' argument. If you're going to be doing the things that man esteems, what things will you be doing in God's sight? God, here's your blank, abominates what man esteems. 
God finds contemptible, lowly, rotten, it smells and stinks, the very things that men exalt. This is exactly the point he's going to make in the next parable. There's a rich man clothed in purple who ate sumptuously. Surely in the eyes of all the community, people longed to be him. He was the envy of everyone in his town. And yet when he dies, he is sent to hell. Because what man esteems, God abominates. Man's judgment and value system is at odds with and conflicts with God's. So you have to pick whose value system you're going to pursue because they're not the same. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is why Jesus in his opening sermon in Luke 6 says, blessed are you when people speak evil of you because if you're being faithful to God, you'll be doing things that people think are crazy and contemptible Conversely, if you're finding yourself in lockstep with the culture so that all your neighbors and all the people around you think you are wise, think you've got it together, watch out, Jesus says. Be warned. For so do they speak of the false prophets. That's, that's the first line of rebuke. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. They have the gall to scoff at and mock God incarnate. And Jesus says, I know what's going on in your hearts. God knows what's going on in your hearts. You don't fool me. You are those who seek to justify yourself before men. You love stuff, not God. So that's the first point. The second point, and what seems initially like a radical change of topics is this, point two. Jesus explains his ministry. Now up to this point, the flow of Jesus' argument and what he says makes sense. He teaches on money. They scoff at his teaching on money. So Jesus turns and answers them and rebukes them. So far, so good. Where does this talk of the law and John and the kingdom come from? And then how does he get from there to divorce and remarriage? That's the challenge, right? As he goes right from, is an abomination in the sight of God, the law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dog the law to become void. How does Jesus get from rebuking the Pharisees for their love of creation, for their love of the approval of man, to this? Well, I, I, have, I think what Jesus is doing is explaining his ministry. Now, keep in mind, at the beginning of chapter 15, they are grumbling because Jesus welcomed, ate with sinners and tax collectors. He had table fellowship with them. And then here, Jesus is telling them that you want to give away the things you have. You want to be, you want to be storing up treasure in the life to come, not this life. In fact, if you're focused on storing up treasure in this life, it puts you at odds with an enmity with God. So those are the two axes along which they stumbled and we're seeing them grumbling at. And I think what Jesus is doing is explaining his ministry because there is something new about what Jesus is doing. I think that's the logic of the argument. The law and the prophets were until John. John the Baptist forms the bridge. Again, this is something Jesus has said before in Luke's gospel. If you remember Luke chapter 7, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Jesus is dividing salvation history into at least two eras. And here, it's the era of the law and the prophets of which John is the greatest man born of woman. And yet Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, 28, 
the least in the kingdom is greater than him. So there's the kingdom age, there's the age of the law and the prophets, and Jesus is drawing the dividing line at John. The law and the prophets were until John. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I don't think he's suddenly changing the topic, and some commentators have suggested that, that the the break, the apparent break in the flow of topic is so great that some have just suggested Luke just sort of throws in some odd sayings of Jesus ad hoc, which is just ludicrous, especially since he's right back on point in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, dealing with money, dealing with the reversals that we saw earlier, right? The invited guests are shut outside, and those who are poor, blind, and lame are welcomed in. The prodigal son is in the party, the older brother's outside, the rich man is in hell, and Lazarus is in heaven at Abraham's side. Now he's right back on point. This isn't some departure. What I think Jesus is doing is this, in essence saying, I will grant, and here's the point, that there is newness, the newness of Jesus' ministry. There is something new. There is something hitherto unseen in what Jesus is doing. There is. And the Pharisees are rightly picking up on something different, something new. That's the whole point of the, the law and the prophets were until, but now something new is here. In contrast to the law and the prophets, the kingdom of God is preached. So what's new? Well, for one, Jesus is welcoming and having table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. Now, in one sense, you can look at the entire Old Testament sacrificial system as the the rites, the means, the the hoops that want us to go through to have table fellowship with God. Think, Think of it that way. And so it was all about how close you could come and what you have to do before you could draw closer still so that only one man a year could actually approach God's holy of holies for a few minutes a year. Then the priest could enter the holy place. The, the men could enter the, the court of the men. Then there's the court of the women and children. Then there's the court of the Gentiles. And even then, as you approached God, there were washings, oblations, sacrifices that had to be made. The, the point was, drawing near to God is a black tie affair, so to speak, Right? You don't just sort of show up willy-nilly, but, but you, you, you take it seriously because he's holy and he's a consuming fire. And so in one respect, I was reading one book that suggested that you could view the entire sacrificial system as the, the, the way of achieving table fellowship with God. How do you draw close to God? Such, I mean, that's the picture of table fellowship. That was their stumbling in chapter 15 over Jesus. He eats with sinners. He sits down at the table with them. Now, in one hand, we saw, we spent three weeks going over Jesus' radical demands for discipleship. He says, you've got to hate your mother and father. You've got to count the cost. You've got to pick up your cross. You've got to renounce all that you have. But for those who respond in repentance and faith, nothing else is required. They may come. And so chapter 15 starts with tax collectors and sinners drawing near and eating at a table with Jesus. And Jesus makes it clear that was the axis of his explanation. They are repentant tax collectors and sinners. They are those who have heard his call and responded in faith. So he likens his joy in eating with them to that of a shepherd finding a lost sheep. And he says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Like a woman who finds a coin is like Heaven's joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. That's Jesus' answer. They have responded in repentance and faith, and so they're welcome. No need of sacrifices, offerings, oblations, and such. Because Jesus would offer himself as a sacrifice on their behalf. And so 
there is something new. And this is an unprecedented level of grace and invitation. Even today, Jesus welcomes all who come to him in repentance and faith. Jesus will turn none away who will come to him with empty hands, hearts broken over sin. We, we read in Psalm 51, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, oh God, these are your sacrifices, these you will not despise. There is something new. And so as they're watching these, these wretched sinners flock to Jesus and Jesus welcomed them with arms wide open, sit at a table and eat with them, he recognized, yes, yes, there is something new going on here, fair enough. The newness of Jesus' ministry. The law and the prophets were until John. That was the era. The law governed the people of God. But now, we saw this same shift back in 12. Now that the king is present, where not the time of the law and the prophets, but the proclamation of the kingdom is preached. What the ESV has there is good news is the same Greek word we get gospel from. Literally, it says this. Since then, the kingdom of God is gospelized. It's, 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 it's good news, literally. And all are forcing their way in. Or, if you look at the footnote in the ESV, being forced or exhorted to come in. And I think that's the emphasis. That word all or everyone is the key. Jesus is welcoming everyone. All types of people. This, this proclamation of the kingdom, that the king is present, and that if you will lay down your arms and renounce your treason, your rebellion, you can be welcomed as citizens of heaven, as his people. You can sit down and sup with him. And he welcomes all sorts of people. Romans. We saw the faith of the centurion that Jesus was amazed at. This is what the Pharisees are stumbling over. They've got a system that, makes, that measures what people think of other people, and so they're the good guys, and who are the bad guys in people's sight? Well, it's the tax collectors and the sinners and certainly the Romans. And Jesus has no such distinctions. He's measuring people by the hearts. Is it the heart of repentance and faith? Well, then you're welcome. Come, sit, eat. And then if it's not a heart of repentance and faith, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank, how large your phylactery is, that makes no difference whatsoever for what is exalted in God's sight is in, in man's sight is an abomination in God's sight. See, the gospel of the kingdom, point two, is pronounced or announced to all, to everyone. This is what Jesus came to do. Turn back to Luke 4. You remember this. His first sermon in his hometown in Nazareth. Verse 18. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah 61. Verse 18 and 19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That's the word we get Messiah from, Messiah. He has messiahed me, he has anointed me to proclaim good news or gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus is very inauguration of his ministry. I'm here to minister to the poor, the blind, the oppressed, the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And that's exactly what's happening. Law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the kingdom of God in Christ has been gospelized, good news, announced with joy to all, and everyone is forcing their way in. Now, that's a difficult word to translate there. 
and some translations even put it in the past if they're being urged. Um, I won't explain, it, it basically comes down to the Greek verb could be translated both ways, actively or passively. It works both ways, actually. If you take the active meaning, it means people are using force to enter. And that makes sense. We've seen Jesus put high demands. And so those who are coming are those who have counted the cost. They are those who have decided their loyalty to Jesus is greater than their loyalty to their mother, their father, their children. These are the people who've renounced everything. Just as Jesus told them to strive to enter through the narrow gate, these are those who are doing that. If you take it passively, as the the footnote says down at the bottom, then it's those who are being urged to enter, which is exactly what Jesus has been doing. So whether you take it actively or passively, it's true. I tend to think it probably has more to focus on the urging. Jesus has been urging people to enter, all sorts of people to enter, because that's the emphasis in the past chapter too, that he'll go out and invite and urge, remember, the parable of the uh, wedding feast, that the servants go out to the highways and byways and compel people to come in. I, I think that, that fits the context. But either way, it works. But what's stopped tripping up the Pharisees is that everyone, and not just the good guys, everyone forces his way in or is being urged in. That the gospel of the kingdom is announced to all. So on the one hand, Jesus recognizes there is something new to my ministry. Again, this is something he's recognized before. Back in chapter 6, where he talked about the wineskins, and his ministry is a new wineskin. Actually, sorry, 5, 37 to 38. No one puts new wine into an old wineskin. If he does, the new wine will burst in the skins, and it will be spilled. Even back then, he was recognizing a newness, a notion of consummation to his ministry. That which the Old Testament predicted, Jesus fulfills. But he also stresses point B, the continuity of his ministry, the continuity of Jesus' ministry. So on the one hand, there is something new and fresh and different about what Jesus is doing and how he is doing it. Pharisees are right on picking up on that. But lest anyone think that means it is undercutting, short-selling, cheapening, weakening the Old Testament as if somehow Jesus and his ministry and his new way of doing things were at odds, were doing violence to the Old Testament, he says in the strongest possible terms that is not the case. He insists that all of God's word is sure. You know, I've talked to people, especially from a local college down the street, who will say that the, the doctrine of inerrancy is a, um, how do you do this? It is a enlightenment modernistic notion that only came about at the Protestant Reformation. That's ludicrous. If anything, the, the enlightenment would be anti-supernaturalism. In fact, it was because the enlightenment was anti-supernaturalism that all the books got written in defense of inerrancy. No, you want to go find inerrancy. Jesus is the staunchest the most staunch inerrantist ever. He makes statements that are so radical. <laughs> they make any of our statements on inerrancy look tame. You know, go grab our statement of faith. Jesus, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one dot of the law to become void. You know, people will try to get around what the Bible says by saying things like, I believe the message of the Bible. Jesus didn't. He, he's talking about, he's not even talking about words. He's not even talking about letters. He's talking about parts of letters. That's what the Greek word here means, a part of a letter. Think of a capital P and a capital F. 
that little piece that makes, that's, that's the type of thing we're talking about. Jesus is insisting on the accuracy of the Old Testament to the level of parts of letters of words. And so my, my response is, look, I just want to read my Bible like Jesus reads his Bible as best I can. And here's one of those statements. Heaven and earth will pass away before a part of a letter of the Old Testament will fall. It is that sure. We don't have time right now, but we will look at in a few weeks. We're going to pause our study of Luke in a few weeks and, and look at some of the key doctrines of the Reformation. This October is going to mark the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation, and so we're going to look at some of the five key solas, alones of the Protestant Reformation. The very first one will be Scripture alone. And we'll take a good look at Jesus and his use of the Scripture, but he argues from words he builds entire arguments over a singular or a plural word. The Apostle Paul does the same. And Jesus insists in the absolute sureness of God's word, literally that it will not fall. The notion is that it won't fall to the ground. God has spoken, and either his word is effective and it accomplishes, or it falls to the ground empty and dead. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away. God's word will not fall to the ground. It will not fall. Because, and we've seen this in Luke's gospel, point two, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law's promise. You see, Jesus is doing something different than what the law was doing, but it's precisely what the law predicted. We saw that in his quotation of Isaiah 61. The law predicts Messiah will come and pronounce gospel to the poor. That's what he's doing. We saw when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and God the Father spoke audibly. This is my beloved son, listen to him, which links into Deuteronomy 18 where God says, I'll raise up for you a prophet like Moses. You're gonna listen to him. And God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. Jesus is the fulfillment. If it were not for Jesus in his ministry, the Old Testament would fall. But precisely because Jesus fulfills its promise, it is upheld. No, they can't argue that Jesus is treating the Old Testament lightly, even as he has newness in his ministry. He, he has continuity, and he fulfills it. Which brings us to point three, that Jesus indicts the Pharisees. Jesus indicts the Pharisees. Now, this is probably the, the strangest turn in the text. After speaking with the law and the prophets, the certainty of the word of God, how does verse 18 fit in? Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And like I said, my, my ESV Bible makes that a separate topic as if Jesus says, oh, by the way, while we're talking about the law and the prophets, here's what I think about divorce. Now back to what we were saying. That's not what's going on. That's not what's going on. What is going on? Jesus has implicitly defended his ministry to the Pharisees. We know in Luke's gospel, that they viewed themselves as those who kept the law. They were tightly aligned with the scribes, the lawyers. They did things according to the Torah. And they challenged Jesus, you don't keep the traditions. So Jesus has defended, he's explained, look, there is something new that I'm doing, but it's completely in keeping with and fulfillment with the law. It's not at odds with the law. Now, I think what he's doing is this. You... Law keepers, you Torah men, let's see how you do with God's law. God's word will not fall to the ground. Let's see how your treatment of it works. That, that, I think, is the implicit logic of what Jesus is doing. He indicts the Pharisees. 
You see, I've already suggested before that precisely because their concern is not with God's approval but with man's, they've majored on the big public things. They've majored on those things that can be seen. This washing of hands, their robes, the seats at parties. But they've also at the same time filed off the sharp corners of God's demands in his law to make life a little easier. And apparently one of the places that they did that was in their marriage, divorce, and remarriage practices. This is a topic they brought up to Jesus regularly, asking him, you can find it in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 6, Matthew 19, teacher, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reasons? This is on their minds a lot. And I think what Jesus is doing is indicting them. I think that by implication it's clear they are not upholding God's righteous standard. They do not uphold God's words. The irony here being that they are implicitly charging Jesus with not upholding Scripture. Jesus is not only upholding Scripture, he's fulfilling it. At the same time that they are saying Jesus is not upholding Scripture, they're breaking it. They are breaking it. They do not uphold God's word. And here's, I think, the link of the thought. Jesus has said that not a single piece of a letter of God's word will fall to the ground. It's not, it's not for nothing. It's not vain. And yet these men, and notice how the emphasis is on the man in both instances. It's everyone who divorces his wife and marries another. So who's that? That's the man. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus is focusing on the man in both instances. Again, I think partly because he's indicting the Pharisees in their practice. The Pharisees are not only those who weaken God's law and let it fall to the ground. Their own word they let fall to the ground. They make an oath. They make a covenant of marriage. And do they uphold that word? No, they let it fall to the ground as they divorce their wives. And when they come along and marry a woman divorced, do they honor her word and her husband's previous word? Do they honor even the words of men? No, they let those fall to the ground as they do as they please. They do not uphold God's word. They do not uphold their own word. They do not uphold their own word. In Malachi 2.16 God says this, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord. The God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord. So guard yourselves and your spirit to not be faithless. Marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. It's meant to be a picture of the gospel. It ought to be that there is just as much possibility of an earthly marriage breaking up than there ought to be any reality to the possibility that a true believer in Christ could be lost, which is to say none. And yes, I know Jesus recognizes at least one exception. He doesn't mention it here. We can talk about that in the ABF. But the, but the point is, however many exceptions you see, the Pharisees had made it far wider, far broader, so they could do as they please. And As we hear Jesus' rebuke, we ought to sit and consider if we've done some of the same things. And I want to suggest as we go through this that we, living in a very wealthy, very um, rich country, have the great possibility that riches and mammon rule our hearts, that we might be consumed with more thought given to what people think of us than what God thinks of us. And that we, and by we I just mean broadly the American church, I'm not thinking of anything or anyone in particular, may also have, have, have 
shaved off some of the corners. I think I can prove it to you very simply that the, the American church has not upheld God's word in, in regards to divorce and remarriage. And again, I, I know there are exceptions. I'm not trying to deal with that. Look at the big picture. Here's, here's what I'll prove it to you. However many exceptions you think there are, how many people do you know of specifically that you would consider non-exception? In 19 years as a Christian, I can count on less than one hand people I know who have identified themselves, I'm not the exception. And maybe, maybe your experience is different than mine, but just challenge you. How many, forget, forget what the exceptions are. There is at least one exception, maybe more. However many there are, how many non-exceptions are you aware of? How many people, if any, do you know who God's word to them is, while your husband or wife remains alive, you are a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God? I, I can think of less than five people in 19 years as a Christian I've met who've identified themselves that way. Which means then that the exception has become the rule. And clearly that can't be right. So it would be good for us to hear this and to think through this. We can talk through this. I'm sure we will in the ABF. But let that ring that we, we live in an age where we're, we're crying out that marriage is not being treated as holy. That the law of the land defiles marriage. But while we had cultural dominance, we were not exactly, and I just mean in large, the American church, we have not been exactly those people holding up marriage as sacred and holy. And we may too need to hear that rebuke that perhaps we've shaved corners off so that we can do as we please. The last thing we want to do is be sitting in the seats of the Pharisees. We don't want to scoff at and mock God. We don't want to love possessions. We want to be Christ's disciples. And so, Luke lets us listen in as Jesus lights up, rebukes, and answers the Pharisees. But in doing that, we need to hear what part of that addresses us and hear it and respond in faith. And these are difficult things, but they're here for our good. They are here for our good. Jesus upholds God's word. The question is, do we? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would cleanse our hearts from the love of money and things. That you would cleanse our heart from the fear of man worshiping at the altar of what people think of us. And we pray that you would give us a conviction and a courage to take your word and your demands even when it is hard and not tone it down or tame it. That we would receive it as truth. And we would submit our minds and our lives to it. Lord God, we know that we can only do that by your spirit and by your grace. So we ask for that grace. We pray that your spirit would lead us and direct our feet. In Jesus' name, amen.